Chapter Eleven of Spiders by Cecil Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There are fossid spiders. It is quite impossible in a work like the present to deal with the classification of spiders. About forty families have been established, some of them of vast extent, the Atidae, for example, including some four thousand species. The great French arachnologist M. E. Simon has occupied 2,000 quarto pages in defining the families, subfamilies, and genera, without concerning himself with the species at all. It is, however, desirable that the attention of the reader should be called to the primary division of the group, according to which all spiders are either Erinae verae, true spiders, or Erinae therophosae, therophosid spiders. Now, these two kinds of spiders may readily be distinguished by a single, easily observable characteristic, the nature of the mandibles, or chelicerae, but it is necessary to describe the spider's mandibles before the difference can be appreciated. Their nature is perhaps best explained by saying that each mandible is not unlike a penknife with a single small blade, rather more than half open when in use, closed when at rest. The handle of the penknife is certainly in most cases very short and thick, and the blade not really a blade at all, for it has no cutting edge, but is a fang or piercing instrument, generally somewhat curved and with a sharp point. The blade is, moreover, perforated by a tube which comes from the poison gland, situated in the thickened handle, or in the spider's head, so that poison can be forced into the wound which it inflicts. Now, take two pen knives with the blades half open and hold them so that they hang with the hinge downward and with the blades directed towards each other. It is clear that the blades may be made to pierce an object situated between them by moving the handles laterally, the object being attacked simultaneously on either side. This is the arrangement in the true spiders, whose jaws move sideways, though they do not always hang perpendicularly, but are more often somewhat slanted forwards. To represent the jaws of the therophosid spider, the pen knives must be arranged differently. Place the handles horizontally and parallel to each other, with the blades directed downwards and also parallel. They will now work not sidewise, but up and down, and both fangs will pierce the victim from above. In a word, the two spiders have jaws which can be separated or brought together and which tend to meet in the object into which they are plunged, while the jaws of therophosid spiders work in parallel vertical planes and strike downwards. All the spiders which have so far concerned us are Arinae verae, and we have incidentally had occasion to note some of the principal families of that division, Epiridae or Argiopidae, as some prefer to call them, 
Therididae, Agilinidae, Thomisidae, Lycosidae, and Atidae. Indeed, there is only one Theraphosid spider that there is the least likelihood of our coming across in this country. Their true home is in hotter climes, and though stragglers from their army are not rare in the warmer portions of temperate regions, they abound only in tropical countries. They include the trapdoor spiders common in the Mediterranean region and in many other widely distant parts of the world, and the great bird-eating spiders of the tropics, the spiders which are quite wrongly but universally alluded to in America as tarantulas. The single British example is well worth the study of any reader who is fortunate enough to come across it, but he must first catch his hair, for Atypus affinis, or Piceus, as it used to be called, does not grow in every hedgerow, nor is it easy to find it where it does occur. Most of the localities recorded are in the south of England. It is a thick-set, dark-colored spider, about half an inch in length, and with very thick, powerful mandibles, which, as we have seen, work vertically. Its nest is a loosely woven tubular structure, which partly lines a more or less vertical hole in the ground, and partly lies exposed on the surface, but which does not present any obvious opening for entrance and exit. The situation chosen is generally a sloping sandy bank covered with vegetation. The burrow is about eight inches in depth and about three quarters of an inch in diameter. Near the bottom it narrows and then expands into a somewhat wider chamber where the spider lives and constructs its egg cocoon. The portion of the tube above the ground is sometimes longer but more often shorter than the buried portion, and it tapers to a closed end. Mr. Joshua Brown, who first found this spider near Hastings in 1856, took home several of the tubes with the spiders inside. He could find no opening, and though the spiders moved up and down the tubes, they did not emerge. On tearing a tube open, he found no remains of insects inside, but in one case he came across a worm, partly within and partly outside the lower part of the tube, and apparently partially devoured by the spider. The same species is not rare in France, and Monsieur Simon's observations on it closely agreed with those of Mr. Brown. He believed that the spider chiefly depended for its food on earthworms, which in the course of their burrowings came casually into its neighborhood. Since these observations, however, considerable light has been thrown on the habits of the spider by Enoch, who found colonies on Hampstead Heath and near Woking. His investigations extended over several years and wonderful patience was needed before the secrets of this curious animal were divulged. It appears that the female, when once established, never leaves the nest at all. The aerial portion of the web was always a puzzle, but now we know, thanks to Enoch, 
that it constitutes the whole hunting ground of the spider. Like promises and pie crust, it is apparently made to be broken. If it is accidentally brushed against by a passing insect, the spider is instantly aware of the fact, rushes to the spot, and transfixes the intruder with its powerful mandibles. It turns on its back to do this and strikes the insect from behind, afterwards pulling its prey through the weft and into the tube by main force. It drags it to the bottom of the tunnel, makes sure of its death, and immediately returns and repairs the rent. Insects were held against the tube, and the spider, if hungry, accepted them at once. If replete, however, it always gave a tug at the tube, which retracted a portion of it into the burrow, a curious action which Enoch quite learnt to interpret as the I don't want any more movement. The males made nests exactly like the females, but shallower, and they left them to search for their mates, leaving the ends open. On finding a female nest, they serenaded by tapping with their palps, and after some delay, tore open the web and entered. By and by, the female came up and repaired the rent, first pulling the edges together with her jaws and then uniting them with silk from her spinnerets. In one case, nothing more was seen of the male for nine months, when his empty skin was observed at the end of the tube. After nine months of connubial bliss, his consort had devoured him. In the autumn and spring, eggs and newly hatched young were often found in the nests. Late in March, a small hole, one-sixteenth inch in diameter, was noticed at the end of some of the webs, and presently the young began to emerge, never to return to the nest. They immediately climbed the highest objects at hand, and some were seen to be carried off by the breeze. Enoch found by an ingenious experiment that the sand which is incorporated in the aerial part of the tube, no doubt to render it inconspicuous, is obtained from within and not from outside the nest. Carefully covering the exposed web, he powdered the ground all around it with red brick dust, but the particles which the spider embedded in the web were of brown sand evidently obtained from the bottom of the burrow and not from the surrounding surface. But in the case of some newly dispersed young spiders, he was able to see this operation performed. The first part of the nest to be made was the aerial portion, at the foot of which the digging was commenced. Particles of sand were brought up in the jaws of the young spider and pushed into the weft of the tube. Occasionally the jaws were thrust through the delicate web and particles from without were seized and pulled into the silken fabric. It is sad to have to relate that such young spiders as did not emerge from the web within a reasonable time were devoured by their unnatural parent. It sometimes happened that a change of weather 
rendered it unsuitable for the departure of the young. And, in this case, the mother closed up the exit hole and retired to feed upon her offspring. Thus, though there were as many as a hundred and forty in a brood, a good many perished at the outset, and the ants in the surrounding soil accounted for some of the rest. The Atipidae form a small outlying group of the Theraphosid spiders and are able to live in colder regions than most of their relatives. The great bulk of the division belong to the family of Vincularidae. Some of the Vincularidae are not unlike Agilena in their mode of life, spinning a dense sheet web terminating in a tube and entrapping their prey. Far the greater number, however, as far as their habits are known at all, are earth-dwellers, either inhabiting more or less complex burrows of their own, or sheltering under stones or in chance cavities by day, and emerging at night to seek food in the immediate neighborhood of their hiding places. Some of them are quite small, but the majority are large, robust spiders of formidable appearance, the largest known spider, Therophosa liblondi, is found in South America, and its body measures more than three and a half inches in length. Few spiders have attracted more attention than the fabricators of the curious trap-door nests, which are common in the Riviera, and indeed in all the countries bordering the Mediterranean. But abundant though they are, they are extremely difficult to find and it is generally only by chance that their existence is detected. The tarantula occasionally closes the mouth of her tunnel with a sheet of silk in which are encrusted the debris of insects or particles of soil. She does this at the time when she is spinning her cocoon, and any intrusion is particularly inopportune. But she does it also on other occasions which are not so easily accounted for. A reason which would naturally occur to us would be the exclusion of excessive rain or excessive sunshine, but the facts, unfortunately, do not accord with this explanation. Now, however desirable occasional closure may be, a permanent door would hamper the tarantula in her hunting operations, but the habits of the trapdoor spider are different and she closes her retreat with a wonderful hinged lid or trapdoor, and the commonest form of trapdoor is also the most perfect, being thick and tapering and fitted accurately into the beveled mouth of the tube like a stopper in the mouth of a bottle. It is made of alternate layers of spider silk and earth and is free for more than half its circumference the remaining portion of the surface disc being attached to the side of the tube by a flexible hinge of silk. Mogridge dissected the door of a full-size tunnel into 14 graduated discs. The smallest, and of course the lowest, represented the first door ever made by the spider, and the successively larger discs indicated the stages at which its increasing size rendered an enlargement of the tube, and therefore of the door, necessary. 
the spider always interweaves vegetable matter from the neighborhood into each new disc, so that, as a rule, it is entirely indistinguishable from its surroundings when closed. And not only dead vegetable matter, for if the tube is situated amongst moss, moss grows upon the lid. From our previous experience, however, we shall not be surprised to find that blind instinct and not forethought is responsible for this action. Mogridge removed the lid of a tunnel and also cleared the ground immediately round it of all vegetation. Nevertheless, when the spider made a new door, it covered it with moss taken from the undisturbed vegetation beyond, so that the trap door was now conspicuous as a green oasis in a sandy desert and on another occasion a spider interwove fragments of scarlet fabric left purposely at hand into the lid of its tunnel. It is clear, therefore, that the decoration of the door is due to an instinct which impels the spider to utilize any material in the neighborhood without any regard to the effect produced. The tube is densely lined with silk, which affords its architect a secure foothold, and if any enemy attempts to open the lid from without, the spider resists with all its strength, which is not inconsiderable, clinging on to its undersurface with its front legs and jaws, while the claws of its other feet grasp the silken walls of the tube. The other type of trapdoor is less interesting and much more elementary, consisting simply of a wafer-like sheet of silk mixed with earth and vegetable matter. But it is a curious fact that while all known trapdoor nests of the cork type are simple tubes, the burrows with wafer doors are much more complex. In some cases there is a branch tube, like that constructed by Lycosa picta, leaving the main tunnel at a depth of some three inches, and reaching the surface perhaps two inches away from the trap door, so that the whole excavation is Y-shaped. This branch tube is permanently closed by a thin sheet of silk and earth, which, however, it would not be difficult to break through if it were urgent for the spider to escape while the enemy was exploring the main tunnel. But a more interesting case is the occurrence of another trap door some way down the tube. If the tube is unbranched, this forms merely a second line of defense if the outer door is forced. But in the case of a branched tube, the additional door hangs at the fork of the Y and is so shaped as to form a perfect valve so that the spider, by holding it against one, or the other side of the tunnel can connect the bottom limb of the Y with either fork at will, leaving to the intruder a beautifully smooth-lined tube to explore with no hint of the possibility of escape in other directions. There are sometimes other complications in the ramification of the tube, but these need not detain us. Each species of spider adheres to its own particular type of architecture and may safely, in a given neighborhood, be identified by its nest. 
As with the Lycosidae, the burrowing is all done by the mandibles, but here the first joint, the handle of the penknife, is of more importance than the blade or fang. Indeed, the burrowing species of the Avicularidae may be distinguished from the rest by their mandibles, which are provided in front with a rastellum or row of teeth for digging. A trapdoor spider then does not go to work like a rabbit or a terrier, scratching and kicking away the earth as it digs. It laboriously dislodges particles of soil with its powerful mandibles and carries away the loosened fragments to deposit them at a distance. The trapdoor spiders of the Mediterranean region are nocturnal creatures, and little is known of their habits. Erber relates that a species found in the island of Tinos comes out at night, fixes open the trapdoor with a few threads, and spins a web near its nest to entrap passing insects, clearing away any trace of it before dawn. In the case of some Chinese and also some Australian species, observers allege that they frequently wander from their nests in the daytime. A Californian species was able to leave its nest when the trapdoor was weighted with three ounces of lead. On re-entering, it seized the edge of the door with its mandibles and, raising it slightly, inserted its front legs. It then turned round and slipped backwards into the tube. It always resisted the forcible opening of its door to the last moment, when it let go and slid into the tube as though going down a well. The larger avincularidae have acquired a reputation for feeding on birds, and this has given rise both to their scientific and their popular name, bird-eating spiders. Several travelers have stated that they have observed them with birds in their grasp, and there is no doubt of their ability to kill any small bird or mammal though it is probable that they seldom have the opportunity, for they spin no snare in which birds may be caught. Even without the aid of their poison, their jaws are so large and powerful that they may easily attain the vital organs of small animals. Probably their staple food consists of the larger insects. They live in holes in the ground, or in trees, or sometimes in the fork of a tree branch. In such hiding places they spend the hours of daylight, emerging at night in search of food. Their large size and uncanny appearance have attracted the attention of the collector, and a great many species are known. But the fact that they chiefly inhabit tropical countries has militated against any very extended study of their habits and the few items of information we possess are best related with regard to the particular spider observed and not taken as necessarily characteristic of the whole tribe. There is little doubt that they live for several years. McCook kept a specimen of Dugicella hensi in captivity for five and a half years, and he considered that when it reached him it was at least a year and a half old and probably more. The same species has recently been made the subject of some very interesting observations by Petrunkovich, who obtained numerous living specimens from Texas 
and kept them in captivity. Unless carefully packed, they bore the railway journey badly, and it was above all things necessary to supply them with water. The captives were fed on grasshoppers, crickets, cockroaches, and wolf spiders, but they ate sparingly, one grasshopper sufficing for three days in the summer, while in the winter hardly any food at all was taken. The sense of touch is extremely well developed in these spiders, but in sight, hearing, and smell they are strangely deficient. No response whatever was obtained to either high or low notes. A cricket sang for hours quite close to a spider which had been kept hungry for several days, without attracting any attention. It is very remarkable, by the way, that insects show no instinctive dread of these formidable creatures, not attempting to keep at a distance, and indeed frequently running over them in trying to find a way out of the cage. Nor do the spiders seem to be at all guided by smell. They evince no knowledge of the presence of insects which emit a strong odor, nor do they react to such tests as those to which the garden spider was subjected unless strong irritants such as chlorine are employed, in the perception of which it is perhaps unnecessary that smell, in the strict sense, should take any part. They have eight eyes, two of them round and rather businesslike in appearance, and the others oval or pear-shaped, and they are very sensitive to light retreating at once from the direct rays of the sun or from a light flashed on them. But they do not appear to see anything at all, recognizing neither friends nor enemies by sight, however close at hand. It was far otherwise with a wolf spider in the same cage. Running towards the Dugicella, it was clearly aware of it at a distance of several inches, and could not be persuaded to approach nearer. But the supremacy of the sense of touch is most striking when the spiders are courting. When the male is seeking the female, he seems quite unaware of her proximity unless he accidentally brushes up against her. If he loses contact for a moment, he is quite at sea and wanders blindly about, turning perhaps to the left when the least motion to the right would bring them together again. This frequently happens when he has accidentally touched the female with one of the hind legs. He immediately turns about, and if she is still there, all is well. But if she has chanced to move out of reach, he is quite at a loss. Neither sight nor sound nor smell guide him, but touch only. The delicacy of this sense, however, is quite remarkable. He seems to be aware at once of the nature of the object which touches him, assuming a threatening attitude if the touch is hostile, or pouncing instantly if hungry and the touch is that of a passing insect. If, however, the insect is lucky enough to escape, it is in no danger of pursuit. As in the case of many spiders, though by no means of all, his courting is not unattended with peril. The tragic fate which sometimes overtakes the male spider has so hit the popular imagination 
that there is a general impression that the female spider is a confirmed misanthrope and desires the life of any suitor bold enough to approach her not at all we have simply to remember that spiders are carnivorous and prone to cannibalism if the female happens to be hungry she makes no nice discrimination between an amorous male and a succulent grasshopper if replete she may find time for the play of softer emotions the male of d hensey appears to be more or less prepared for a hostile reception on the part of the female for the thighs of his front legs are furnished with spurs at their extremity and with these he holds back and renders powerless her threatening fangs there is no doubt that the spider's delicate sense of touch resides in the hairs with which both body and limbs are thickly clothed they are of various kinds fine hairs bristles and stout spines and many of them are supplied with nerve fibers at the base the finer hairs are probably not sensory and they are in the case of some avincularid spiders very easily shed and have a strong irritant action on the hand that touches them not unlike the sting of a nettle it is not at all unusual for one large avincularid spider salmopius cambridgei to be brought over to england in cases of bananas from the west indies mr james adams of dunfurling has kept two specimens alive for a considerable time the first specimen lived in captivity for two years and nine months during which it molted five times but grew very little in size arriving in september it was at first fed on flies and in a few weeks when these began to fail it accepted beetles consuming about three a day in november even these insects were difficult to obtain and recourse was had to cockroaches at first about three cockroaches a week were eaten but the number decreased until in the middle of march it ceased feeding altogether and on april thirteenth it cast its skin it molted again in october and twice a year for the rest of its life in spring and autumn during six months it took no food at all and very little for four months previously at the last molt but one it lost a limb which however reappeared when the spider again changed its skin though it never attained the proper size with spiders as with insects molting is a very serious matter involving much more than the mere casting off of an external coat if all does not go well limbs may easily be lost in the operation nor is it rare to meet with instances in which the animal has perished in its unsuccessful attempt to discard the old integument mr adams's second specimen was kept alive for three years and ten months it molted only once each year in june or july and it died in the act of casting its skin in the case of these spiders also it was noted that insects supplied to them as food displayed no fear whatever there were always a few cockroaches in the same box and they were often observed actually with the spider in its nest 
but no notice was taken of them unless their host chanced to be hungry. A photograph of this spider is given in the frontispiece. It is an interesting fact that many of the avincularidae of southern Asia and Australia possess a sound-producing apparatus which is entirely lacking in African and American forms. But this is a subject which deserves a chapter to itself. End of chapter 11